1: to the official
2: Tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray.
1: Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. Happy 2022 to everybody. I wanna start this year off with uh, a dude that I've grown to know real well over the last six years. Actually knew him back in college, but you know he was on the other team, so I ain't mess with him. He's uh, worked with the USTA. Uh, manager of the excellence programs and corporate activations for the USDA foundation, which, you know, my organization has personally been the benefit of uh, and having an advocate inside of a large organization, which we know we all need. Uh, His name is Sean Holcomb Jones, all around good dude. Welcome to the show, brother.
2: No, thank you. Glad to be here. Excited,
1: excited to sit
2: down, man. And trying to stay out of trouble during this interview.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I, I know what that's like, but I say, you know, you one of the people, when I see your name pop up, I know it's money on the line. So I always answer. Because <laughs> you don't never call me with no BS and waste my time and no tennis gossip. Whenever you call and it's like, yo, this is about to kick off. Are you interested? Or what you think about this? So tell me about how you feel about your role in tennis now. Because, you know, number one, People like you and I, right? I mean, we played at HBCUs, uh, which are not known for great tennis programs, right? Uh, We ain't win no Grand Slam, but we've somehow uh, made it to a point in tennis of significance. So tell us about your role at the USTA and sort of how you got there.
2: Well, you know what? It's funny the first thing you said, which was like, when I call, you know, you know there's always something on the line and it's something good. I'm usually calling to give, you know what I mean, and help out. And I was thinking earlier, cause I was just watching um, Clutch Academy on BET. I don't know if you ever watched that with Rich Paul. You know what I mean? I, don't, I got
1: to catch up.
2: Is. Now you gotta watch Clutch Academy with Rich Paul. Cause my inspiration is really Rich Paul and World Wide West. And World Wide West was the man, now he works for the Knicks, but he used to be the man around the AAU basketball circuit. And really what it is, is I wanna be known as the person that it, that's a power broker and if you need something done and done well, you gotta know Sean. I think that's, that's what my inspiration is to be in tennis. Like I wanna be the guy that everybody knows. Do you know Sean? And if you wanna get something done, you wanna call Sean. Um, and so that's important to me that I'm viewed in that way as a businessman, as someone that's gonna help you, you know, get things ac- accomplished and push through the finish line. Um and when it regard, in regards to my background and kind of how I got here, you know, it's just a it's just a lot of hard work because I think you're absolutely right. Like even if you look at like college coaching, if you look at um, you know, national coaches and all kinds of positions in the USCA, they're legacy positions. Um, and almost every position I ever have received, I just interviewed for it and interviewed well and really pushed for it. Um, you know, coming up, I played at uh, Towson University um, in, in Towson, Maryland. Um, not not a world beater at all. I barely played six every once in a while. So yeah. it's not like I'm not gonna get on here and say, "Hey, I was the best, you know, tennis player to ever, you know, touch a racket." That just wasn't what it what it was. But um, actually, someone once told me when I was very young, when I was about like 16 that your gift is in coaching. It's not, it's not necessarily on the court. Like you're good on the court, but you're great as a coach. And so as I went through the coaching ranks, I did, you know, I was a director of junior tennis, and then I went through the college circuit. And, and that goes around with those connections is I became, um, you know, I started as an assistant at Coppin. I was an assistant at Coppin State, which is, you know, historically black college. Um, I was a head coach. Uh, at Morgan State, which is another historically black college. I was the assistant coach at George Washington. And when I got to Maryland and when I got to a power five and I was assistant, someone told me, I've never heard of a power five assistant that just interviewed and didn't know the coach beforehand. Because that goes back to all of these connections and deep rooted, this deep rooted connection and, you know, hand you know hand washes the other hand that goes on in tennis and they were like I've never heard of an assistant get a power five job that didn't know the heck the interview. Hey if you want to call it that <laughs> you know and so like I moved up through Maryland and I did and I did well there. And then um my contract wasn't renewed at Maryland. So I went on and used my master's degree and went on and, and did did some work at Deloitte. And from there, I was like, I really wanna get back in tennis, but I don't wanna be on a court. I wanna be somewhere where I get to make decisions, where I can make change um, and where I can be innovative. And you know, the perfect pr- position at the USTA foundation came up. It was working with high performance because I'm someone who would rather, I'm gonna be honest, I'd rather work with high performance. I'm not the guy that's gonna get out with your 10 and unders and do the green and yellow, I'm not that guy, you know, the red ball and, you know, orange ball. I'm a guy that I like high performance players. I like working with high performance players. And a lot of times as you learn, especially with college. And I know, you know, from the tour, a lot of high performance coaching is just about managing personalities. And a lot of what we do is just kind of managing personalities and managing a lot of different programs. So how I got- like Managing parents. To, and managing parents and managing egos and and everything else. So, you know, that's kind of how I got here. Um, I definitely have built up, you know, a reputation within the industry, which helped me once I applied for the job. But, you know, I didn't know anybody personally at the foundation um, when I got it, but I definitely made a lot of calls um, in and around the USTA. Um, Big shout out to Jordan Beatty, who helped me out with with some stuff when I called her to kind of me in the direction of you know the job that was open so it's just it's just a lot of calling around and hopefully you know interviewing well and i got the position and it was just a perfect
1: fit for me so you know what's funny though because uh i think a lot of people you know assume that i like the high performance but you know what really gets me excited man let me tell you i get on my hands and knees and i like orange Read the attention span, you know what I mean? Like that four or five, the attention span out there. But like seven, eight, bro. So I say like oh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we have like this group and it's like, you know, seven years old is like 12 years old. And every time I go, I'm like, give me the bottom six kids. And they be like, huh? I be like, give me the worst six. Give me the six that, you know, can't make two balls or whatever. And man, I be getting on my hands and knees, fixing that. And that's the biggest thing for me that COVID sort of just took away like what my gift is, is like technique. I don't believe you could like stand across the net and be a technician. You know what I'm saying? I believe you got to get right up there. You got to like fix their hand on that grip. You got to grab their feet, grab their waist, hold their head, you know, just to make sure everything is nice and tight. Um, right. And then COVID, now it's like, you got to like six feet. Okay, not like that, a little bit lower, a little bit high and it takes take forever. Uh, but that's what I enjoy because at that point, Parents just sitting up on the balcony watching, happy that you even took an interest in their kid. The kid is smiling. You know what I mean? I feel like the high performance became too transient for me. Mm-hmm. Like it was like what I said versus somebody else said, well, somebody else had to do this. I said, Yeah, that dude was sitting at the US Open next to me. Do what he said. Uh, except <laughs> he wasn't. And so I got, I got like, you know, probably like five years ago, I just got a little bit impatient of the easy come easy go high performance thing right mm-hmm. they come to you because you the shiny thing and next month somebody off from a scholarship and they leave right or mm-hmm. they come to you with something somebody else told them and want you to like invalidate it or prove your point I'd be like you know what do what that dude said mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying yeah you, you want to believe that so I I personally shy away from the high performance I understand uh now unless I like obviously got lineage with a kid you know what I mean or feel like there's gonna be some level of control I hate using the word control as it relates to tennis but it just is what it is well you know but man what? I like to hmm? well you know what you did you just talked about one of the solutions because you know you hear a lot of problems
2: about the development of American tennis and this that and the other you just talked about one of the biggest solutions the best coaches don't want to do the work to get with the younger kids and building that technique really early when they're seven and eight. Like, let's be honest, who usually takes the worst six kids? It's your youngest pro with the least experience that's either a high school kid or a college kid. But really what you need if you want to develop players is you need your best coaches to go in and build that technique because they know how to do it the best. And, the high, and once, once coaches get to a certain level in tennis, it's almost like passe to go work you know, orange ball or a green dot. Instead, you got to get down in the trenches if you really want to build up American, you know, tennis players. And a lot of times at the people want to get it after it's already good. And then they want to be like, oh, look what I did. I'm like, well, you know, that's already built up. You know, that's really person." Like I said earlier, a lot of coaching is personality management. So a lot of times you, you're getting players that are already developed you're not the one necessarily making sure that that happens. You're just kind of managing their personality and getting the best out of them so that they can peak at the right time. Where, you know, instead of getting down, like you said, getting down on on the ground and, and, and feeding balls and making sure that technique is perfect. Cause I'm an aesthetic tennis person. I like, I think if your stroke usually looks pretty it's
1: usually gonna work well, you know? Well, let me tell you, even on the tour, right? Like having been, you know on my hands and knees i mean you know because i started in the park right with like mm-hmm. five young kids you know what i'm saying and so i think that even at the pro level when you when when i'm doing a scouting i look at the take back i look at how high it is i look at what the elbow is and i take that and then i i determine the ideal strike zone and try to have my player not hit it in that part. you know what i'm saying like i feel like from building players you learn how to break down a player. Oh, yeah, i seen that grip before. I had a kid at seven years old that held a grip like this. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think that that is sometimes people don't connect to how a lot of pros, you know, the technique ain't all perfect and it's all limitations if you know how to exploit the limitations. You know, tricky contact point and kind of funny looking grip, little hitch on the serve, toss a little too high, like all, you know, open up the shoulders on the serve, which reveals where it's going. All of that stuff you learn by actually building right players. And I feel like that's one of the, you know, one of the things that have not been like a player on tour, right? You know, player on tour, you know, who like, let's say they like retire, right? And then they just go start in the coaching. You know, right. they may not go back and teach a five, six, seven year old to be able to help a player exploit that one technical flaw of that pro. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And even I sit at the bar, obviously, right? We all, all the coaches be at the bar. Like I said at the bar, having conversations with guys, I'm like, "Oh, okay, you ain't never taught. You only coach. Right. Like, coaching is different than teaching, right?" Ooh. So it was like, "Yo, okay, you, you only coach." That's the bar. Don't let that go. Don't let that go over your head for the people that's listening. Don't let that go over your head. Coaching is different than teaching. I know, right? Drake Drake need to go ahead and put that one in his show. Is that- no, no. <laughs> so I feel like I could easily tell the ones that have like taught, mm-hmm. you know, by after two or three drinks with the stuff that they talk about, the stuff that they see. I'm like, "Oh, okay, you ain't taught. You just coach." You just do serve, serve his second ball here. Right. You know what I mean? I think that's like coaching. Right. But teaching is like, all right, yo, this player is number one in the world. I want a grand slam. Here's our one opportunity. Right. And it might be like just this thing. Right. Or, um, and I think that teaching, the value of teaching young kids and constructing players is like pays off big time. You know what I mean? So I, I encourage everybody, even if you coach 40 hours a week, you know, make eight of those hours, orange ball or below. Ooh, orange okay. ball, green ball. That's a challenge for the country.
2: That's a challenge for the country. So all the high, you know, all the high-end academies, all that are here now, all you top coaches that, that work in academies and no cyber structure, that's a
1: challenge. Yeah. And I look at play when I go to like do little clinics and stuff, all the stuff y'all do national camps. I look at the person right now. I'm like, Oh, okay. You, you got a glass ceiling, right? Cause your technique is fully baked. You ain't, you're too old to be trying to break the forehand down. Now nah, It's like, how do I make the best of it? But when you get into that mindset of how you make the best of it, you really just trying to like maximize something that's going to be ultimately be limited. You know what I mean? And I feel like that's the, the disadvantage of coming on board. I call third base coach, right? Mm-hmm. Getting a player from another coach, they like 50 in the country, then you take them to 20 in the country. You know what I mean? Like that's third base coaching. But again, it's like, you're really trying to maximize a flawed player, you know, or, or a player that's got some sort of limitations that are unsolvable at that point. And to me, that's not the most rewarding part, right? If you look at like the space, that's not the most rewarding space. And it's the most rewarding space is like, you know, what well, I heard Rick Macy talk about like Vincent Serena when they could, you know, barely hit the ball and woody mm-hmm. woody wop. Um, to me, that was like that's that was like sort of the space that I feel is most rewarding.
2: And luckily I've been um, to be in that space too, but like I said earlier, I ain't going back. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, you one of them. So you like my go-to, because I get all types of calls from mm-hmm. like players hey, we coming through here. Can we come? Can you, you know, can you come do an assessment? Or they come to me looking for money, right? For like the next money, money to go on tour, money to get started. And I always call you because, you know, you you got a good pulse with all your involvement with the excellence programs, JTTC, XS, Mm -hmm. uh, Minnesota, Sloan, Mm -hmm. you know, all these academies. You got a pretty good pulse on like, who's up and coming so what minority boy right because we all know it's a conversation we're struggling for like boys minority boys in the sport what minority boys do you think have pro potential if any
0: Ooh, and, I, and, and
1: don't hesitate I always say I haven't seen one I always say that like right now somebody said what 16 year old boy you think you know, got it. I was like, I, I haven't seen one yet, so it's okay if that's the answer too. Oh no, I know the answer. It's an easy answer for me, but now right. that
2: it's on the record, it's gonna blow up. People are gonna hear it, man. <laughs> people are gonna hear it, and I, and I and now it's good that it's on the record because people be like, I, he said it first. It, it's Corel Gano. Okay, Corelgano for sure. I mean, everybody. Yeah, is that is that Clarvis brother? That is Clarvis' little brother or younger brother. I don't even wanna call a little brother because he's tall. So, of course, right now, we hear a lot of talk about Claire V, um, Robin Montgomery, and some of the other players on the women's side. But Claire V's brother, 13 years old, I watched him play the Winter National six
1: teams this week. That's, that's my pick right there. <laughs> Not, now, we talking top 10 UCLA, University of Florida type player, or are we talking like, you know top 100 pro top 100 pro you're on the record
2: i'm on the record
1: all right so ten, then ten, toes down. 10
2: 10 10 to- 10 toes down on the record all right so what girl i mean definitely i mean clare v uh robin Montgomery. you know both both products of the usta foundation excellence program so you know i'm gonna always say those two first um you know what what Robin did at the U S open girls last year, pulling off the double, you know, winning singles and doubles first to do it. Since Lindsay Davenport, we know how Lindsay Davenport's career turned out. So, um, you know, definitely, definitely Robin, um, definitely Claire V beyond. uh, and, and, And here's another player and I don't know what their ceiling is, but I do, do like their game is Ashlyn Krueger. Um, I just think she does what she knows how to do the way she knows how to do it. And um, from an aesthetic, her, 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 strokes on both sides, forehand and backhand are both rock solid. Um, so, so those are my three of the young up and comers um, that, that I'm, that I'm, that I'm going to put a stamp behind in my mind since you put me on the
0: spot.
1: I mean, you name some names that sort of like bring up another conversation, right? So we know, Mm -hmm. I remember uh, so Claire V's sister, Malkia, Mm -hmm. actually came and stayed with me. Okay. right? Lived in my crib, crazy, fun player to be around, crazy, Mm -hmm. right? And at the time, she had a little sister, but I wasn't ready for the little sister, you know what I mean? Right, right, right. Um, And uh, Malkia ended up Going to Kansas, right? Playing college tennis, good Good player. She's still playing well right now. Top, uh, I want to say she's top 60 in the country right now, playing pretty solid. Yep. Yeah. So when you look at like, there's been some pretty notable players that have like gone abroad, you know what I mean? In terms of like train, try, and not that I agree with it, not that I think it's necessary, mm-hmm. but you think about like, you know, Naomi Osaka having obviously, you know, become a Japanese resident. You talk mm-hmm. about, um, Coco golf right Mm -hmm. you know having to go to France and getting some financial support also the kind of stuff you talk about Claire V who also Mm -hmm. you know sort of went to France like you know that this player is good at 10 years old how do we as a country you know and I'm not talking about like USTA per se I'm talking about like me all the other people who hear about the player how do we let those types of players go overseas to get support Mm, How does tough... that happen? I feel like it happens a lot, right? Where perhaps we don't see the talent because we're so focused on the strokes, mm-hmm. not focused enough on the gifts, right? Mm-hmm. Like you just said about Ashley Kruger, oh, she's solid on both sides. Mm-hmm. And then my thought was, so because right. when I think about pro tennis, I think about the gifts. Everybody's solid on both sides, but what kind of gifts mm-hmm. do they have, right? So to me, I was like, eh. I, I thought of Melanie Udan when you just said that. And I'm like, yeah, so what, Melanie Udan? Yeah, but right? well, Melanie was... <laughs> <laughs> right? So, but like somebody like Claire V, who you see at 10 doing like backflips and handstands, Coco, you know what I mean? Okay. Like Naomi, maybe the strokes and all this stuff don't look as solid as young, so it doesn't like make you go like, ooh, but the gifts are there. How do we let those gifts go abroad? Oh man, that's a, that's a tough question, man. I, I said I wasn't trying to get in trouble on
2: this part. <laughs> You know i think it's two things right i think everything you know my background funny enough um outside of tennis is in policy right so i study you know public policy at george washington um actually social policy um so i think it's always a debate between like what the in essence the government sector can do that's your usta you know, that's your Canadian, you know, Federation, that's your French Federation, we are, you know, the governing bodies, the, the, in essence, government, government entities, so to speak, if you want to look at it like that, versus what the private sector can do. And the thing that you always say that the difference between the government and the private sector is the is the level of flexibility, right. Um, So if you're an IMG or you are Mortogaloo, I hope I said his name correctly. You know, there's a lot more flexibility because one, you're not just, you're not necessarily just encompassed into just your country, you know, with that, with, you know, Muratoglu being in France and, and, um, and you know, an IMG even being in Florida or any of those type of, an Everett Academy, you can pick from wherever you see talent from, whether it be overseas, whether it be here, Um, So it gives you a little bit more to pull from. And I think, you know, with us, the country is so vast, right? So you have a certain amount of money that you have to, in essence, spread out and cover a large part of the country. So are you always going to pick the right person? Maybe, maybe not. And a lot of things about the way this, you know, selections happen or people get on the radar, has to do with access like who see, who is seeing you early right um, and i think that's what we have to do a better job of is finding the talent early and investing in it and i think on the flip side of that i think the scary thing a lot is it's always easy to say in hindsight we should have you know we should have seen this or we should have seen that but we also know the consequence of betting on someone and being wrong, especially with large amounts of funding. So you thinking that this player is going to be that player and they don't end up being that, but then you're you know six to seven figures deep in funding. So being the person, being someone who who has to pick the right person to, to you know. To, to be the next one is never an easy task. And I think people love to say it from the sidelines, oh, how, you, how haven't you found the next this or this, or how did you miss that? But when you're negotiating and you're deciding how much money to put behind you know, certain players, that is not the easiest thing to do. And you really can't be wrong, because if you're wrong too many
1: times, no one's going to trust you to put money behind something. Well. So it's funny you say that because I, I had this conversation with, you know, like investment dudes and they lose money all the time. Right. And they say, look, I need, find me 20 players and we're going to win on five, win big on five and lose a little bit on 15. Right. Absolutely. Um, But you brought up a point. Do you think it's because we're looking for the wrong thing? You know what I mean? Like, like when you mentioned strokes, I mm-hmm. roll my eyes like, bro, who cares about that? Right. Because if you look at like, the, the people who win, right? To me, feet win. 100%. Osaka, Osaka, right? Osaka's winning, Halep winning, Kerber winning, Sloan winning. You know, and I look at the, just, just Americans, right? Venus Serena. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. we always say that of the past three American Grand Slam champions, I mean, other than Kennan, Kennan is like more strokes than feet, right? But, you know, when you think about the American Grand Slam champions, they more feet than strokes. And so is it, are we, are we afraid to bet and afraid to get it wrong because we're using the wrong metric? Are we putting
2: Serena in the more feet than strokes category?
1: Huh? Are
2: we putting Serena in the more feet than strokes category?
1: 100%. You don't? I'm just asking. Oh, 100%. Okay. Best, 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 best serve of any woman of all time. Okay. But I don't think that you look at her strokes and say, wow, that forehand is like, the best ever. It's, it's the cleanest. Mm-hmm. This, this. You mean, I know, teddy, you look
2: at the point of view. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Backhand, volley. I mean, you know, volley's a little shaky, right? You know what I mean? But again, when you look at all the rest of it and then competing in her mind, when you look at her feet and her mind, her mind, right? Her mind. Those things are the best in the world or the best ever. The strokes and stuff are like, look, you could name five players with a better forehand in Serena. You can name five players with a back, better backhand in Serena. Mm-hmm. Maybe not. Five all deuce, right? Right, they just, right, right, right. Right? But that's the mind, right? And so, yes, I'm 100% putting Serena in the more feet than strokes. And, and I'm 100% putting Venus in the... And, and when I say feet, I mean athleticism, right? No, I don't mean like physical feet. Yeah, you mean feet and athleticism. And Hala, Hala, more feet and strokes. Kerber, right. more feet than strokes. I mean, like, Osaka, more feet than strokes. Coco, more feet than strokes. Jocelyn V. v more feet than strokes. <laughs> Djokovic. I mean, yeah, Djokovic is a whole <laughs> lot more than strokes, right? So, so, I mean, like, is it the fact that we're looking, we, we we have the wrong evaluators, or we're evaluating people through the wrong lens, or maybe given the fact of where the game is headed, right? If we're looking at, mm-hmm. as a national body, we're trying to compete globally. France, Australia, I mean, Nick six 6'5", bro, like, he could be a hoop. Oh right? Songa, Mm -hmm. big, Monfils, big. Like, if we're looking to compete globally, should we be looking at, hey, America has great coaches, Macy, Voluntary, Jay Berger, you know, all these other people, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Chanda, we got some of the best technicians in the world. Right. We're not giving them the Monfils. What are we giving them? So, right. No, absolutely. So,
2: so what I would say to that is, well, first, one thing I wanted to mention is the thing that's the most underrated about Serena is her understanding of the geometry of the court. And I don't think she gets enough credit for that. The way, the angles that she finds, like in her understanding of the court and court position, I don't think, I don't hear the commentators talk about that enough. I don't hear people talking about it enough. They love to talk about it when Hingis had a command of the geometry of the court. And just because serena has power you're missing the fact that she understands the 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 parameters of the court better than anybody that we've ever seen so i just wanted to put that out there and the answer is yeah we got to get athletes i mean if you if you want to get if you want to win you got to get athletes Mm -hmm. yeah if you want to win we we got we got to get better athletes and i think what are we doing as a sport to attract players to our sport from all walks of life, whether it be, um, for especially culturally, and especially from, you know, a racial diversity piece. You know, what are we doing to attract black players to want to play tennis? What are we doing to to attract Hispanic players that, that to want to play tennis? Asian players that want to play tennis over basketball,
1: over um, football, over. Well, bas- well, here's the thing. So you, so I think, so I think that that to me. Is one of the tricky parts, right? Because you said over, right? So I had, mm-hmm. you know, six best men in my way and five, all of them hooped. Mm-hmm. Or all of them, right? And I hooped until I was 14. And then I always say, when I turned 14, I didn't choose tennis, tennis chose me, right? Because right, right, I was right. just better at it. Same. But thing. if you made me choose at eight or nine, I would not have chosen tennis. No, I would have. I think one of the tricks, the trick bags we fall into is the word over, right? Choosing tennis over basketball. What I say mm-hmm. is, look, Joe Kim Noah, you're gonna hoop and you're gonna play tennis. And then when you get seven feet and you're too tall to play tennis, then you can go hoop, right? You know, mm-hmm. I think that we've got to sort of come up with a way where we massage it and allow players to play both until it's a drop dead date. Because one of the things, one of the things that I think could help even the white country club players, Right, Mm -hmm. there are athletic skills you get from hooping, from playing soccer, from playing volleyball that you don't really get from tennis. Right, if you allow them to go play those sports and get some dexterity, some change of direction, some elevation, some above the head type of dexterity as well, right? Mm -hmm. Then at fourteen, like, all right, you suck at volleyball. Come back to tennis. You know what I mean? We need to focus more on tennis. Right? Or. Yeah, you thought you was good in basketball. You played like four minutes the last game. All right, come on. You need to focus on tennis now. I think that is where we gotta start to be more cooperative versus forcing them to choose. Because mm-hmm. I think the dude that's six foot not gonna choose tennis at eleven years old. No,
2: and and and, and we gotta have them be multi sport athletes just for that. I mean, especially when they're young. Um, there's a girl that I had uh, that came to me that I identified in. Um, she was like, you know, a long jump, AAU national champion, you know, played basketball, has swimming records in the state of Ohio. And I was like, oh, well, yeah. We, if you're gonna choose tennis, we need to make, we, we need to make sure that, you know, we're giving you all of the opportunities that we can
1: because those are the type of athletes we're looking for. But Bro, I think- I would get on my hands and knees and teach her <laughs> how to hold a racket. Right. Right now, like feet, knee, knee pads, Shoes yep. dirty, black pants dirty. Everybody, when I come off the court, everybody look at me like, man, why your clothes dirty?" I'm like, because I was rolling around in this dirty court. I yep. would take a player like that and get on my hands and knees and make sure everything is in tight. Make sure everything's right. With threats to our nation waiting around every
0: corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination
1: is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.
2: And and I think we got to make the separation too. Like, let's be honest, right? The value proposition for men's tennis versus women's tennis are two different value propositions, right? If you are, you know... A young woman and you shoot for the stars, and you want to be the next Serena, you want to be the next Naomi, you want to be the next Coco. Great. You are amongst the highest paid athletes, women athletes in the world. Period. That's that's what you're gonna be if you hit that mark, right? We all know that. In comparison to any other women's sports, tennis pays the best, without question. And if you miss, and you get about an eighth UTR, you're gonna get a full tennis scholarship, right? Right. So how do I convince, you know, a basketball player or a football to eventually choose tennis where you could be top 50 in the country and you're still gonna get a partial if you don't make it to be Roger Federer or Novak or Rafael Nadal? And you have to ask people like, well, who is the influence of tennis onto these kids to eventually they're going to want to choose tennis? Because I might be able to be the best thousand basketball player in the country, and I'm still going to get a full somewhere. So, right. how, so how do we change the value proposition, especially for the boys in particular? Because as far as I'm concerned, the girls are pretty hip to it and they're they're on it. But the boys, how do we change that value proposition to make them say, hey, I want to be, you know, Francis Tiafo rather than I want to be LeBron James? No chance. <laughs> I mean, I mean, so it's an uphill battle. I'm not saying that it's impossible, but you have we have to understand on that side of the fence in particular, because it's a it's a completely different value proposition than than women's tennis. It just is what it is. And um, how, do we, how do we convince that this is the right move to go, to go in this direction? Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with you know, finding athletes, but also like tapping into culture. Like you have to feel like you belong into tennis. And, and, and that's really what it comes down to. Like at the end of the day, one thing I noticed anecdotally, especially about black people that stayed in tennis in the community, in, in jobs within the sport, a lot of them anecdotally had black coaches or black influence in their early tennis that allowed them to want to stay in the game when it was all said and done. Um, and so we have to see ourselves more in the game. We have to be more culturally relevant where people think it's cool to play tennis.
1: You know, how do we do that? I mean, I look at the first thing that comes to my mind is like clothes right when i look at like hoopas and the type of shoes the christmas sneaks and you know no. the grant the, the nike grinch edition all this other kind of stuff i look at like the stuff that uh you know like clothing has become part of the culture of nba Hundred right? uh and i feel like we've had small like glimpses like pharrell did something with adidas we've had like small little things in tennis and it was like Virgil a Lee little bit of, of yeah a little bit of ripple i mean jordan did the thing with federer right jordan mm-hmm. did one thing with sloan in in, in 20 18 or 19 19 maybe but it was mm-hmm. like it just came and went you know what i mean we just missed it and it never stuck like how do we get industry to say all right the shorts are too short let's make them longer mm-hmm. right the, the shirt's kind of lame you know what i mean like how do we get that you you well number one, you gotta embrace fashion.
2: Like if you know if if you know me, anybody that knows me knows I'm in sneakers and streetwear, and I always got a hat on. Um, so I was like, I'm not coming to this interview any different. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, because when I when I'm out in the field, so to speak, and I'm visiting programs or I'm out somewhere, I think it's more important for me to be dressed in a hoodie and a fitted hat because a kid is gonna see that and be like, oh, that's this guy at older, I could be that. I wanna be that, right? Because he knows what's cool now, and I'd rather be that than the guy with, you know, the blue khaki pants on and, you know, the uniform shirt that we see so in so many of these offices. And I know people look at me a certain type of way sometimes because I always have a hoodie on, I always have a, a hat on, but I, I know the fashion. But when I walk around in the field, they always know, oh, Sean got those sneakers on. Oh, I could be that, maybe I'll stay in the game. And you have to feel where that connects. So we have to get out of one, we have to get out of this mindset that, you know, tennis and even the surrounding pieces of tennis has to look a certain way, you know? Because we're we're missing attracting the people that are looking up to us that wanna be that because they still see something that as they grow up, they don't necessarily wanna be. Um, and I think that's important for, for kids to see. I'll never forget, I went to New Orleans, I had on some you know, some fresh Yeezys, and you know, I was styling for my day, you know? And the kid said to me directly, he said, I didn't expect
1: someone like you to come from the USTA. Yeah, and I mean, I will say, bro, alive. the beard, the Rick Ross beard that you've been rocking, I'm surprised that lasts. I mean, I worked in corporate America for 12 years. And, you know, I got no earring. I still, you know, very low facial hair, low haircut. You know what I mean? I'm surprised that you lasted that long looking like that
0: at the machine.
2: It's because I'm trying to prove to the next generation that you can be you and like the things you want and like the things that you like and still make it And, And as long as you're really good at what you do. And um, I think that's an important message, but that's important to attracting people in the game. Like, do they see people, when, when they see you, do they feel like you are a part of them? Do they see you as the older version of them? Or do they see you as something that's completely disconnected from who they are? And I don't want to ever come around and visit a program and the players feel like I'm totally disconnected from who they are. And um, I don't, I don't, I don't ever want that feeling. And we have to make sure that we don't give off that feeling, and that we embrace, embrace those things because everybody is interested in um, in fashion and culture. And you know, a lot of you know these 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 brands from Kit to uh, what Virgil did—they're all doing these collaborations that surround tennis, but we're not promoting them. We have to promote them internally so everybody feels that. And, um, you know, you talked about fashion in the NBA, the biggest thing right now is the whole league fits thing where they come through the tunnel and you see what they got, you know, what they are wearing and what their their fit is when they come on. We don't have anything like that in tennis, right? Where people feel connected on a different level, um, that cool factor. So we need to still work on that. And, And, you know, we was talking earlier you know before we got on just about the old days you know i got a bunch of the old Agassiz sneakers that were that were killing them the high top joints that everybody still likes to this day that they brought back in retro so i think we have to embrace all of this thing and one of the the things i will say that i thought was positive and it shows that nick and francis are really um influencing the youth i was at winter nationals and i was watching the finals of doubles of girls doubles and there's two girls that had matching Tyler Hero jerseys on, basketball jerseys. And I was like, well, who did that first? That's definitely Nick Curios and Francis. And we have to embrace moments like that. We have to let kids get out of, you know, just the things that we normally, did. We normally see them in with tennis. And we gotta push these things forward because even in Europe, soccer kids are, are, are super popular. What tennis apparel thing is super popular outside of wearing it to play tennis? Mm-hmm. And we got to figure out how we become embedded in culture. Um, and until we figure that out, we won't have the big explosion that we
1: want to have. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, man, I totally agree. You know, I, I try to like still be me and still be where I'm from. I was mark a little Jordan thing, you know, and put my little I still access hoodie.
2: Ex- ex- I'm just saying, I'm
1: just saying. You know, hey, you know, I got you. I, I think I owe you one. Don't worry. Yeah. I got you. It's on the way. It'll go right with my Concord 11s. Yeah. <laughs> well, man, bro, I appreciate you chopping it up, man. I want to say um, keep doing what you're doing. I'm, I'm actually proud of you for uh, ascending to where you, you've ascended to. Um, sure. You know, as somebody who worked in corporate America for 12 years, I know it's not easy looking like you look. I know it's not easy to be an advocate and to speak your mind. Definitely ain't easy to rock that beard as long as you've been rocking it, um, and it's and only man, getting bigger. <laughs> and you know, keep looking out, man. Keep keep showing up at, at at the parks and and identifying the talent. And you know, before they go to France, man, send them my way, bro. Come on, you know. So. Oh man, you already know. You, you 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 know. I gotta text you as soon as we get off here. <laughs> Well, I appreciate it. This has been the Tennis.com podcast, everyone. Thank you for listening. You've had uh, the pleasure of speaking with my boy, Sean Holcomb-Jones, who is the manager of the Excellence Program Corporate Activations for the USTA Foundation. So check him out on Instagram. We'll see you next week.